The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to this week's edition of Stock Take. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager at Intelligent Investor, filling in for Gaurav Sodhi, who's on annual leave and attending your wedding. Uh, someone we know well, and I didn't get an invite, but uh, I won't complain. He's going to a wedding. Uh, how, many, how many people are you allowed at one of those? <laughs> that's a good that's question. A, that's, that's why you didn't get the invite, because it's a pretty tight, <laughs> uh, pretty tight arrangement. I'm going to an 18th birthday party, which got expanded. It was going to be 10, and then, they got, then I was on the sort of B list. Because uh, it's case, how did you get an invite to an 18th birthday party, JC? Well, it's the child of a, child, child of a cousin. He's <laughs> playing the alcohol or something. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there we go. Uh, so it's a beautiful welcome to, to James Carlyle and Mickey Mordek. Mickey, oh, yeah. uh, Hello, you've everyone. been um, let out of the house down in Victoria. Have you, you drank the pubs dry yet? Yeah, all uh, yeah, I've been working on it. Um, so yeah, still got still got a bit of work to do on that front, but um, got another weekend coming up uh, soon. So, soldier on, keep up the good work. Thanks. So today's discussion, uh, I just put together a few questions that I've got from members over the last month or two, and they pretty much centre around two things. One, people starting to worry about valuations and how do they sell stocks and the other one was more uh, generally about uh, how to find undiscovered stocks and, and perhaps how to use screening to uncover uh, interesting opportunities. This morning or overnight, uh, Jeremy Grantham uh, published, uh, actually it was one of his colleagues at GMO, his firm, published uh, a PDF and basically saying today rhymes with 1999 and they did uh, produce a number of charts and just showed how close things looked to 1999. There was very many similarities, which I won't go into, um, but it might be worth your trouble if you've not already signed up to GMO's emails, just to have a quick look and to see where he thinks there is value and where there's no value. So uh, GMO is fairly famous for providing the seven-year uh, forecast for different sectors, for bonds and for stocks in different areas. Uh, emerging markets in the US, for example. But uh, last night, uh, I think this has been coming anyway, but they said they're finally ready to tell you just to get out and, uh, and, and wait for better value, although they say emerging markets are very cheap. So that's a nice segue into the first question, uh, which was from a member and says, tell me how to sell shares with four exclamation marks. I just can't bring myself to do it. And yet I know I have some holdings I should lighten or get rid of. I think this is the most value uh, investors' problems. Uh, it's easy-ish to buy cheap, unloved and undervalued stocks, but it's so hard to sell right. JC, how do you get the sell decision right? Well, my um, advice is always to focus on the buy decision. And by focusing on what you want to buy, that generally tells you what you want to sell. Because if you want to buy something, you've got to find the money from somewhere. So... <clears throat> It's always a case of, of uh, you know, you, you find an opportunity you really want to buy that you want in your portfolio more than what's already there. And so you've got to sell your least desirable holding um, to, get to, to get the money to do that. Um, of course, that 
presumes that you're keeping the portfolio at roughly the same sort of size. If you want to, um, you know, raise cash, then, you know, how, how much cash to hold is, I suppose, a separate question. What do you think in terms of when people are, like, well, I think we just assume that people are looking at valuation and thinking that's the reason they want to sell. Yet, if you looked at valuations probably even three or four years ago for the great businesses, they looked expensive then and they just essentially the price to earnings ratios have gone up from what historically used to be, say, 20 times to 45 times or even 50 times now in the case of Domino's. Is it the right thing to be thinking about selling these companies or should people just be trying to hold them because they're great businesses regardless of valuation? Well, yeah. I, um, I mean, I suppose, again, if you it, it comes back to if, if you've got Domino's in your portfolio on a P, let's say, 50 times and you've got um, something, a really good opportunity you want to buy on a P of, of 20 or, or that you just think is a better opportunity than that on a P of 50, then then I think it's fine to sell it. I'm not really a believer in, uh, um, you know, never never sell uh, sort of stocks. So sometimes when valuations get extreme, then, I mean, I, I, I tend to have a, a sort of a collection of holdings in my portfolio that I'm just happy with for the long term, really, you know, high quality companies. And I suppose what happens is, um, you know, as they go up and the multiple expands, I'll take a bit of profit. And if they come back, then I'll um, buy a bit more of them. And, and the ones I'm buying more of at any point in time tend to be the ones I think are cheaper. And the ones I'm taking profits from at any point in time t- tend to be the ones that are a bit more expensive. But if I, if I really like a company, then it does tend to stay in my portfolio one way or another, although, you know, at, at maybe slightly reduced weightings um, if it gets very expensive. Mickey, what are you doing at the moment, mate? Are you trying to target or build up cash because valuations are high, or are you sticking with the companies you've got? No, uh, no, I'm I'm pretty much fully invested personally in my in my personal account. Um, I think just my my disposition is generally just towards always being invested, and I I just like um, I like to be invested, and as long as I can find stocks that I think can double over, say, the next five years, then I'm pretty happy to um, put my money in them. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't generally run with a lot of cash, and I think it's also just like my personal situation where, you know, I'm getting an income from from working, and and so I'm just trying to build up, uh, you know, um, my capital base basically, and 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 so, you know, and and I think. Uh, so from my perspective, you know, I'm happy to to be invested, and I still think there's plenty of opportunities, you know, that 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 you can find that um, can do well from here. So, yeah, and I think also personally, I'm actually probably more scared of of cash uh, in in some ways, you know, given you know what's going on with fiscal stimulus and all the central bank activity and things like that. So, um, yeah, I so think- I think it's it's just a personal thing, and 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 I'm kind of more comfortable being invested and I mean markets rise most of the time so you kind of you know you generally cash cash is a drag over over the long term so I think I think that's a crucial point but it's it's important to sort of see it uh, again in what you said about personal circumstances so you're in a different position from me because because I have a mortgage so effectively everything if I if I sold my entire portfolio now I'd still have a small mortgage um uh so effectively everything I own is backed by money borrowed at whatever it is four or four or five percent so um i i can get a risk-free pre-tax return of something like six percent by by selling things which is better than i mean if most people if they have cash sitting on the side are getting one percent so that's a huge difference right there Mm. um 
and uh, and so that makes the the decision about how big a portfolio. So my, you know, I effectively have a you know a line of credit on my, on my, on my house, and 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 so my portfolio can expand as I think there are more opportunities. Um, obviously, that I think can earn me better than that six percent um, adjusted for the risk. Um, but as things get a bit more hairy, uh, which I would say that we'll come on to it later, I think, but might, might include now, I, I would, um, so, so you know, when everything's looking very attractive, I might be prepared to borrow a bit more, but when everything's not looking so attractive, um, I'm, 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 not, I'm not so inclined to borrow money to buy shares, basically. I think one of the big differences between mm-hmm. uh, us and a lot of our members is a lot of our members don't have to pay a lot of tax, they're retirees. And we're still working and um, still have a paycheck. So I know just from some of the stocks I bought in March at these crazy low prices, they bounced uh, a great deal. And even if I wanted to raise a bit of cash at the moment, I'd have to pay the full whack of tax on them, which would be you know probably at least 40% uh, because I don't get the 12-month capital gains discount uh, and, and it goes on top of my intelligent investor uh, salary. So there's really no point to me selling them because if I do the maths and say, look, if I was if the share price had fallen by forty percent, then I'd actually be a, a huge buyer of those stocks. I'd be really excited. So there's actually not much point to me selling them. I'd just have to sit there and hold them, even if I had mm. a really strong view that the market was going to fall, which is you know an- another conversation entirely. But I do think we do reach these periods of extremes. And I think you've got, and I've, and I've seen a lot of fund managers that, that we know personally, um, basically the ones I follow, they're sticking with their stocks. Uh, one um, good friend has uh, admitted that one of his stocks uh, was overpriced, but it's been a core holding of his fund since uh, day dot, which is I think probably 15 years ago or more. And he has no interest in selling it. Uh, so what if it's a bit overpriced? It's a great business and he's going to own it. So... Um, you know, I get essentially why crystallise the tax um, for a business that he loves, and you know maybe he's prepared to accept a six or seven percent annualised return from here for it, um, rather than you know the ten percent plus that normally we're aiming for. I just wanted to read a quote. Um, sorry, what we've been doing with our portfolios is I'm less inclined to hang on to those businesses. Uh, I've like when I first rejoined Intelligent Investor a couple of years ago now. I remember looking at ResMed and just you know, always liked the business and it was trading at, I think it was, I feel like it was like 23 or 24 times earnings. And historically, that's still a very high multiple, even for a great business. And I just feel like we've been really lucky that that stock, uh, you know, has gone up. I think we made, uh, let me think about it, maybe 70 or 80%, I think, since buying it. So we So we earned 80%. In... <laughs> well, we upgraded at four fifty, so it's a six six bag. Six bag is this we upgraded, yeah, but that's, that's over one seven we've years. Actually held yeah. onto and not sold prematurely, like many of the others. Uh, so we yeah. made this eighty percent on ResMed in in the funds, like in a very quick time. You know, it's been perfectly placed because of COVID. It's actually been a sort of beneficiary of COVID, uh, unlike a lot of other stocks, and because low interest rates has you know just pushed up that demand for these few growth stocks we have in Australia. So now it trades at something like 40 times earnings and I still think valuations matter and I still still think it's very different buying something at below 20s versus uh, 40 times earnings. And so uh, we've sold it from the portfolios 
Now, that we may have lived to regret that because in five or ten years, it's most likely to be a bigger and better business and it's one of the few out there that you know, has unrecognised uh, people out there that should actually be wearing the mask for their sleep apnea. So a huge market of unidentified patients. Um, great growth one way has the insider ownership, great balance sheet, all the things we look for. But to me, buying at 44 or 45 times earnings, you're essentially saying that for the next five, six years, you could have the price to earnings ratio just to go back to something normal, or you're waiting for someone to pay 55 times earnings for the stock. Uh, and I know the great investors would probably tell you to hang on, but I just think in a five-year period, we're going to get these great opportunities at some point to put that money to work in something much better. And my view is that I'd rather be patient uh, and wait for those opportunities, whereas it's quite reasonable for other people just to hang on and make sure they don't crystallize any capital gains or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you could see a scenario like, I mean, well, it's hard to see the scenario, but there is a scenario where, you know, interest rates rise. Um, and I think if you can get, like, if you can get, you know, a term deposit that's doing, you know, even 3% or something, I think a lot of people would pull their money out of the stock market and, and be happy with that. So, you know, there's, um, but I mean, we'll probably have much bigger problems in the economy if interest rates are at 3%. We can hardly even handle half a percent. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it seems like a lot of this, a lot of the question marks just come back to what the interest rate is going to be and where you can put your money and what the opportunities are. Uh, and right now, there's not a lot, but I mean, who knows in, in a few years, like if you, if you, if you do get um, some other opportunities available, then that could, that could happen. Well, the, the weird thing is that, um, you know, in the past, or by which I mean sort of maybe 20, 20 odd years ago, the situation was that people would buy bonds if they wanted safe, steady cash flows long, long into the future. But now with bonds, I mean, in some places having negative interest rates, <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, at the at best, very low interest rates, um, that's not really possible. So it, it feels as though people are sort of buying stocks um, for that long-term uh, flow of cash and high-quality stocks for that long-term flow of cash. And, um, you know, and they're seeing a certain amount of growth in some of them as well. And so that that's, I suppose, why these are getting priced through the roof. But one's got to remember that stocks, uh, there are risks. <laughs> there are risks to stocks. You don't just get your, your, your money back when the thing redeems in 10 years' time. There's a, you know, so um, the valuations can swing about and... Uh, to play devil's yeah. advocate, though, I mean, is it is it totally irrational, you know, if you are, you know, looking for a yield and you can buy, you know, West Farmers no, on a no, three or 3.5% dividend? No, you know? I, I definitely don't think it's irrational. And West Farmers is, 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 I think, you know, maybe less overvalued than some things. But, um, sure, um, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's not irrational. But what I think it does is it means, um, I've, I've likened it in discussions with people to, to a sort of house of cards, you, you build your valuation. Up, if you're if you're looking for long-term growing cash flows over decades to justify your your valuation, it it becomes that valuation becomes very exposed to any events that happen over the next sort of decade or two, um, and, and to any changes in interest rates and and all those sorts of things. So look, it, it could could be rational. It could be much better to hold stocks and expensive growing ones over the next. 30 years um but but i think you're just baking a lot into that um you know you're making some assumptions there which you know um 
uh, is a bit dangerous. Uh, whereas if you're buying things much cheaper, then uh, you know you're you're looking for you, to be proved right over a period of a few years or a decade. Do you know what I mean? It it, it the thing is a much lower you know house of cards, I suppose. Yeah. What 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 else is out there that's cheaper? Well, not much, and that's <laughs> and that's the problem, which is why I'm left. So so to to jump the gun to a, which I think a further question. I mean, I've halved my um, portfolio since since um, March. You know, well, not you know since since, uh, since the thing the market's bounced since March. Um, so I've been been selling quite aggressively because I can. Pay, so I get my like I said before a six percent um, risk free return from paying off my mortgage. Um, that seems like a very good bet. I really like the top sort of 10 to 12 stocks in our portfolios. I think they'll do great over the next five to 10 years. What is hard at the moment is when we're selling these great businesses, and there's been a lot of them, Macquarie Telecom, Zero, ResMed, and a whole bunch of others. These are not businesses that you can just go and replace in terms of quality or, uh, or growth in the future. But because the market's run so hard since then, there's, there's not really anything great to replace them with. I think there are. I think about the market in or the stocks I like at the moment in two baskets. There's the the small stocks that are flying under the radar, so that's a RPM Global or Frontier, for example. And then there's a bunch of COVID recovery stocks, uh, like maybe the airports, are a good example, and the casinos. Um, so we and we've already owned them. They're already a significant part of the portfolio. And some people suggest, well, why don't you just invest more in those positions? But they're already very large by fund manager standards, we tend to run fairly concentrated portfolios compared to most. So in selling these businesses, there's just not really a lot else uh, to pick them up. So it does require a bit of patience. Uh, personally, I, do, I get uncomfortable when the cash in the portfolios tends to get past 20%. I start to feel like there's pressure that you're timing the markets. But at the moment, it's only the ethical portfolio that's got a bit more than that. But I do, don't really feel any stress at the moment because I'm just seeing... You know, we talk about we don't want to time markets because we're value investors and we bottom up and all that stuff. But at the same time, we're also experienced investors who have seen all of these cycles before and we know what the key ingredients are that make for poor returns in the future. And there's valuations, obviously, but we also see some of the things that come with excitable uh, or euphoric markets. And that's what Jeremy Grantham said, uh, or sorry, his colleague said in his missive uh, overnight was that three or four years ago, we could have said the same thing about valuations. But since we've had COVID, which has knocked the earnings down, um, valuations for the growth stocks are even higher than they were pre-COVID. But what's changed now is you're starting to see all these IPOs flooding out, all these copycat stocks or businesses. You know, you just look at the buy now, pay later. There's another half a dozen afterpays chasing the same market now. And even afterpay hasn't really proven itself yet. So we're starting to see those mania uh, things, you know, the cheap brokerage, which is putting bringing a lot of new young people into the market and we can actually see from the brokerage houses uh, the stocks that they're buying and they're not buying your grandfather's West Farmers and Woolworths. They're buying, you know, these second order stocks that I, I think when we look back in time, you know, five or 10 years, we'll, uh, if we even saw them come out in the first place, we'll forget all about them. Uh, there'll be very few winners out of this period. So I actually don't mind holding the cash. But sort of like that uh, the chart as well um, in one of those emails as well, I think it was just showing that, you know, a lot of the returns have come from a very small number of those high-flying stocks. So um, I think that just goes to your point. There's kind of those pockets of ma the market where things are, are pretty crazy um, for sure. I just, use, uh, I just want to get one uh, 
example because I just love this quote and it's just a bit of a guide that sometimes uh, things just get a little bit out of hand. Because what the market does is, it, it like you uh, used the example of West Farmers, Mickey, saying is it um, sensible for, let's say, a retiree to buy essentially what is Bunnings, which is one of the most best business in Australia, uh, on a 3.5% yield and with a little bit of growth over time you'd expect. You know, that may be sensible, but the thing with markets is they usually just keep pushing and pushing these things until they break, and that's why you get these you know big collapses afterwards. Uh, so I'm looking at zero. Like zero is a great business. It, you know, we all know it pretty well these days. You rarely find a business where the customers are so happy about it, uh, and also the, the investors in it are, are just as enthusiastic. And there's plenty of growth and lots of opportunities in front of it. But it, at the moment, it trades at 24 times revenue. Uh, that's not earnings. That's revenue. Uh, so I just want to read out this quote um, back from 19 uh, or after the tech wreck, essentially, um, just because I just love going through it. Sometimes a quote uh, can actually just sum up a whole period, and you can. And this is why you know GMO was saying that the current situation rhymes with 99. Anyway, this guy called Scott McNeely was the CEO of Sun Microsystems, one of the darlings of that bubble. Uh, at its peak, his uh, stock hit valuation of 10 times revenues. So remember, we're talking about you know multiples of that 10 times revenues in the current environment, uh, even though some of these software businesses are actually better than Sun Microsystems, which was a bit of a hardware company as well. Anyway, he said a couple of years afterward, he had this to say about that time. At 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero research and development costs for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realise how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to be saying the same things about this period, but I don't think it's necessarily about Google and Facebook and these highly profitable leaders that we know about. For me, it's going to be more of those pretender companies coming behind them. One thing as well that I've found interesting is everyone's willing to pay for these software businesses because, you know, really good economics and they you know, network effects, capital light, you know, they keep the customers forever. Uh, but I mean, I just wonder, you know, is there going to be something that comes along to disrupt some of these companies that we just can't even think of right now? Um, you know, we're paying for 20 years, 30 years in advance. Who knows what, what's going to happen in 10 years um, in terms of the technology. So, I mean, yeah, I think there's risks there as well. Um, it's hard to see what they might be, but that's what the nature of disruption is. You know, sometimes you don't see it coming and, and it can happen. So. Well, Buffett used to say that newspapers were the best business in the, on the planet, didn't he? And, and that's a good example. I think in the 1980s, you wouldn't have imagined um, that they'd be replaced so comprehensively within 20 years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's what I mean by the house of cards. You, you just don't know what's coming and you build these valuations up and you, you make bigger and bigger um, assumptions and bring bring the future forward to now or back to now. Um, you know, it's 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 just a, a slightly dangerous game to be playing. I think, yeah. 
All right, thank you, boys, for uh, in the discussion about valuations and how to sell. I don't think we've made it any easier for anyone. It's just a really tough job, and uh, I recall looking. Sorry, go, James. Well, I think that oh, I was just going to say the key. I think is to focus on what you're going to do with the money. That if if you are going to sell it, so if you're going to buy something, or if you're going to hold it in cash, or you're going to pay off your mortgage, if you think about what you're going to do with the money then that'll give you an idea of whether you yeah, want to I think sell uh, stock. Charlie Munger used to say there's three risks that come with selling a stock. Is One, you've got to get that decision right because the stock you know, may be undervalued and keep going up. Uh, then you've got to find uh, another opportunity, um, which may be more risky than the one you've let go. Um, and there's another component to that, which I forget now. Um, but I remember reading research uh, on... Uh, so if you're a big fund manager, you tend to get these organisations that come in and go through all your returns over history, and uh, they can work out where you've made your returns from, uh, but they also look at your sell decisions, and every time I've read something about that, they show that fund managers are excellent at buying undervalued stocks, but they're absolutely hopeless at selling, and there's actually no relationship between the performance of the stock and the sell decision, uh, or to put it another way, it's just the sell decision's been no good. So if it's tough for you at home, um, it's no different for us as well. But I think the most important thing is probably what I think you alluded to, James, was you've got to know yourself and you've got to know what you're comfortable with because one quote from Jeremy Grantham I always loved was he said you have to live with the portfolio of least regret. Uh, You're never going to get things perfect, but you have to work out what you're going to regret more, whether that's selling now um, or missing out when the stock goes up uh, and vice versa on the buying as well. So know yourself. And just and and try and prepare your portfolio for your emotions. Um, if you need a bit of cash to sleep at night, well, that's absolutely fine. Um, others don't. Um, it's about knowing yourself. All right. So this last part is really about how to find opportunities. And I'll just read out the question from our member. When you discover stocks, is there a sweet spot that you find uh, when you get them? For example, stocks with a market cap of around 150 to 350 million look undiscovered. Beyond half a billion, you start getting the hot stocks. And then over a billion dollars, I imagine you start getting bigger institutions looking at those stocks. Um, With that in mind, can you use these market cap buckets as a screening tool to find companies that suit your risk profile? Silence means no. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd also caution against kind of assuming that, you know, these small cap companies are under undiscovered. I think that like there's a lot of people looking at small caps um, and the Australian market's really saturated. So there's just people crawling over everything really. So um, good ideas don't tend to stay undiscovered for all that long. I mean, I guess they're just under-owned in a lot of cases because, you know, fund managers can't buy them until they get bigger. But, um, yeah, but, that, so, but I think... That's, that's proportional to how illiquid they are, if you see what I mean. So so the the, the really, um, you know, it's only the very small ones that, that fund managers, you know, don't own. And there are some fund managers who are specifically looking in those areas. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So some some fund managers are yeah on, focused on that really small end of the spectrum as well. So, um, so yeah. But I don't think you need to invest in small caps or anything. Or you know, you can definitely make good returns out of out of big caps as well. I mean, as we saw in March. So, uh, you know, lots of these big caps went on to double, um, or triple even in, in many cases. So, 
um, as long as you have a view that's you know different from the market, then you can you can exploit that. I think. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I don't necessarily look for stocks which are so-called undiscovered. There's the problem with those is that there's an informational sort of gap. You know, there's there's far less information out there on these stocks. And so I suppose it's possible for you to know more than other people. But knowing more about stocks than other people isn't really where I see my advantage personally. I don't think it's where we particularly have an advantage either. There's a lot of people out there crawling over stocks. Um, I think that the advantage is in um, processing that information better and and, um, thinking long term and understanding what are the qualities that will, you know, uh, position a company well for the long term. and and you you can have that in in a, a company that's worth tens of billions of, of dollars. The market is you know fre- frequently processes the information wrong, so I don't think you've got to be just looking for for stocks where you think you have um, an informational edge where you know they're undiscovered or whatever. The uh, following question was: Do you know a good way to screen for free cash flow on the ASX? But I thought I'd just ask you more broadly: uh, Do you use screening at all? Uh, and if not, why not? And what are other ways that you actually find opportunities? Well, I don't really use screens now because the the problem with screens is they just they just find what you're looking for, you know, <laughs> and, which may be, which may be the purpose. But but there's always a reason why free cash flow should be high or should be low. You know, there may be. Um, a business. I, I suppose you can find free cash flow, and then you then you've got to go and have a good look at it, um, and see whether last year there was a you know there was a, a particular cash inflow for something or whatever something distorting it. But I think you can start from you you can find that from a, a, a good business will generate good free cash flow. So I tend to look around, um, and you know it's just a question of reading a lot, um, and. You know, going through a, a, a lot of um, a lot of sources, trying to find good businesses, and if you find what appears to be a good business, then what tends to happen is you look at the numbers and uh, you find that it generates pretty good free cash flow. Um, so I tend to go that way at it. If you if you look, you know, the the classic one is to screen for sort of low PEs and high return on on equity. Um, but you know, you end up finding a lot of companies with distortions that are, you know, suddenly going to hit a brick wall because, um, and that's why they're on a low P. You know, it, it's hard to get ahead of the market with that that sort of thing. I think. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done well out of a stock I found on a screener. Um, or I can't think of any occasions. I, I don't really use them anymore either. Um, I mean, it's not to say you can't you know, do, use them, um, you know, and, and they might be a good way to, to find certain things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I reckon there's, you know, it's um, you just got to keep your eyes out keep your eyes peeled for, you know, read fund manager letters and, and read, uh, you know, the news and articles. And I, I think even just, um, uh, you know, um, sometimes occasionally just looking at random companies or just picking up a calendar and, and seeing what AGMs are coming up and just go, you know, I'm going to check out what does our company do and, and, and just uh, take take five minutes to have a quick look at it. Um, and also the conferences as well, they're really useful. You know, you get a lot, across a lot of stories that way and um, you can get to see, you know, five or ten ideas in, you know, a couple of hours and, and that can be a good way to source ideas as well. So I find that's more useful than... Um, kind of screening for metrics and I stuff. I think our three, uh, at least at one time, our three largest holdings in the growth portfolio didn't make a profit or didn't report a profit. 
And to me, that's a perfect example of why screening lets you down. So if we take Frontier Digital, for example, it's uh, essentially a house for investment stakes in a whole bunch of businesses. So the accounting is a complete mess because there's some uh, controlled holdings, so over 50% uh, where all the accounts are incorporated into Frontier's accounts, but then you've got all these other holdings which get reported completely different. And there's the value of those underlying businesses doesn't show up absolutely at all in the accounts of Frontier. And I think the market tends to like uh, simple stories. So they like to see a nice earnings per share chart going up each year um, and the longer the period, the better. And Frontier just doesn't have that yet. If we look at Ordinate, uh, you know, if you look at its competitive advantages compared to its competitors, which is almost the number one thing you need to know, uh, in my view, which is why I always say things like valuation are overrated. It's not that they don't matter. Valuations do matter. But the competitive advantage is what sustains earnings growth over long periods. And Ordinate's just absolutely monstered the competition. So even though it wasn't quite profitable, you can see that that's an industry that should be very profitable at scale. And you can see that the demand's going to come through and you can see that there's no competition uh, or very little, at least from our investigations. Uh, so the market has essentially, uh, it's got it to itself over the next five to 10 years. So if you look at a PE, it actually looks meaningless anyway, because it's, I think it's only just broke even. Broke even. Uh, but it's raised capital, it can keep investing, which is exactly what we're looking for. Uh, so again, it's these qualitative factors uh, that drive our investment decisions rather than just looking for statistical cheapness or some sort of uh, metric that you can screen on. And the problem with screening is you actually end up screening out so many good or interesting things, uh, which is, uh, I think when you're a global investor, uh, might be the price you'd be, you're prepared to pay because it's just a big world out there. But in Australia, I forget what the numbers are, but um, in the old days, I always used to think there was something like 2,000 stocks listed in Australia. I think 1,000 were resources stocks, which I'm not particularly interested in. I think another half of the 1,000 left were profitable. So again, that probably knocks out the whole bunch that you don't want to own. But, but there again, there lies the rub that you you know you Frontier and Ordinate and these other great beatings would be knocked out if you did that screen. Um, and I think the other part was just a whole bunch of companies that uh, you just wouldn't want to own because they're just very low quality. I, I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Because if you do a screen, you're really just doing what the market does. If you're screening for, you know, if 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 you're screening for low PE because that seems like a good idea. And and if that's what the market's tending to do, also look for stocks that are on low PEs, then it it actually turns out perhaps you'd be better off looking for the. It means that the stocks with with high PEs, but actually which have um, good prospects, would be the undervalued ones. So you see, so you, you possibly need to be more contrarian and actually, you know. So in the end, you should be, you know looking for stocks on low PEs, stocks on high PEs, and the answer is you probably shouldn't be looking at that metric at all because it it really comes down to examining the business and trying to evaluate its potential and then when you've done all that I think is the time to be um, understanding what price you'd want to pay for it. Yeah and and I guess so the first thing you're basically trying to do um, is just make sure it has a competitive advantage there's really no point really looking at anything 
I mean, well, I mean, it depends on, you know, your investment style and I guess, you know, there's other asset plays and things that you can do. But, you know, generally speaking, that's what you want to look for before you start to go onto other metrics and you're not really going to find that in a screen. Yeah, the danger is also that you find something that screens well and you think, oh, this is on a, this is, look, looks really cheap. And you, you've sort of made that decision before you've actually considered the business and then you and then you sort of shoehorn in the, the, the qualitative criteria um you know and you you find competitive advantages where they're not because you you want to buy the thing because it's on a p of 10 and really it it's those those factors should be doing the the should be leading you i think and then the price is more the um the the final step that's how i would look at it so can it work the other way then <laughs> how do you mean how do you mean work the other way oh like you you find a stock with a competitive advantage and then uh well, I suppose it could. Well, if you're desperate to buy it because there's a competitive, it's got really good competitive advantages, then you pay almost anything for it. I, I, I guess it can work that way. But my experience is that the market is more focused on the on the price and less focused on the competitive advantages. So I, I, I think that um, you, you're better off doing it that way because you you know the, those businesses um, tend to be the ones that are undervalued. That's that's my experience of it anyway. That, although that, that that's been um, tested at the moment, isn't it? The way valuations are going. When I first started Intelligent Investor, I remember I was always looking for things on low PEs because you were really trying to find the the value play. But uh, you know, over experience, what you see is the great businesses tend to be hitting highs over a long period of time. So when you go there as a value investor, you're looking for these stocks hitting their 52-week lows. Again, the 52 weeks is completely arbitrary, but that's what the system allows you to do nice and easily. And, you know, or if you go through the paper, I think they said the 52, it still does, 52-week highs and lows. So you go in there and you're just predisposed looking for these, you know, already biased, looking for these low PEs, so to speak. And actually, what if you want to buy great businesses that can compound for a long period of time, then they're actually the ones that are trading on high multiples and hitting new highs all the time, uh, which is a complete contrast to you know, the value hounds. Um, and I think a lot of people have probably realised that over the last 10 years in in the way we have, it's just better to buy quality. Um, although you do have these incredible periods like March where if you buy, bought some of that lower quality stuff, you probably made four or five times your money. So if you if you think about um, those businesses that are on 52 weeks lows as well, they're probably dealing with so many issues and you're just always in this position. I learned this with Thorn where you're kind of just always thinking about these questions that are unanswerable and you just don't have the information to make a decision on them and you just kind of you know, you're constantly, constantly pondering and, and, and thinking about it from a million different ways, spending so much time on these things when you could just buy a good business and not have to worry about it. You just you, you just don't have to worry about those things. I mean, you, you keep an eye on things and make sure that things are still ticking over, but you don't have to worry about is, is this business going to go bankrupt or is... You yeah, know, what's is management going to do? You know, what's the board going to um, do? What decisions are they going to make? Uh, like, I, like I'm you know, nearly 45 now and I just compare the energy levels that I have for those sorts of situations compared to, um, you know, 2006 when I started at Intelligent Investor and, you know, I had the energy for it and I could put up with, um, you know, some bad announcements or whatever and get through it. But at my age, I just can't be bothered anymore. I, I just don't want to invest with people I don't trust. Uh, you know, it can be hard enough getting the good businesses right. I just, I want the surprises to be good ones because um, I just don't want to have to cope with, you know, three or four, you know, turnarounds. Um, that take longer and are harder and probably only one or two of them will work at best anyway. All right, well, I think the silence means it's a good time to end. 
Thank you very much, Mickey. Thank you, James. Uh, I hope you've you enjoyed this. <laughs> I hope it made some sense to someone. <laughs> so the conclusion is sometimes sell, maybe if. The bottom line is you've just got to know yourself. And uh, or as David Heinhorn always used to say, was just sell a little bit and then see how you feel tomorrow. Yeah, that's good. We'll leave it there then before I ruin it. Thanks again, guys. (laughs) Thanks, thanks.